Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you today. If you have your Bible, please open up to Psalm chapter 8. And keep your Bibles open so that you could look with me as we study God's Word. One of my friends, who is a pastor, is in Hawaii this week on his overdue honeymoon with his new wife, which was delayed due to the pandemic. And on his Instagram account, he's been highlighting his daily adventures with very vivid pictures and descriptions of the most beautiful scenery, plus the most delicious, make a brother get jealous, looking food. The combination of the visual and the gustatory, taste-oriented stimulus had me hooked from the beginning of his posts, and I literally have been reading every single word, paragraphs of it, as he's journaling his adventures in Hawaii. Anyways, yesterday, this brother in his post was describing how he woke up at 2.30 a.m. to see the famous sunrise at Helikala Cliff. Apparently, it's a place where you have to wake up at 2 a.m. to reserve tickets in advance, but they sell out within a matter of a minute. So he was saying they tried for a few days straight and failed, but they were finally able to get the tickets. He explains how it took more than two hours uh, to get there, driving completely in the dark, running on almost no sleep up a steep mountain, reaching an elevation of over 10,000 feet. A wild drive, he describes. By 5.40 a.m., he says, you slowly start to wake up. You begin to realize you're not looking out over at an ocean because all you see is the cliff. But actually... You are above the clouds looking down, looking over a cliff over the clouds. By 6.20, he says, the sun is so bright, the place is so radiating with light, you can't be tired anymore. And he posts uh, the most beautiful sunrise. It's the Instagram flip. So as I read the description, oh, picture one. Okay, and then I flip. And as I flip to this sunrise, you just see how amazing it is. You see how the sight is breathtaking. It's majestic. And I'm pretty sure pictures don't do complete justice. The pictures are just a sample. I can't imagine how it would be in real life. I was doing a bit of a research on this site, and lo and behold, it says of this place, Helikala has a message of beauty and wonder for the soul that cannot be delivered by proxy. In other words, you can't describe it. You can't experience it from a distance. You have to be there to know it. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced something so beautiful, something so amazing, so incredible that you felt as if it was speaking to you? In our passage this afternoon, such was the experience of our psalmist David as he was looking up to the heavens, the moon, and the stars. He realized something very significant. He had an existential moment, if you will, a mind-blowing revelation, an answer to the philosophical quandary of the ages, the answer to the question, what is man? I tell you, generations of anthropologists and biologists and philosophers have attempted to figure this question out. But what do we have? After thousands of years of sciences... Just read up on some of the recent articles in in all the top science journals and magazines about the new discoveries on Neanderthal DNA found in modern human genomes and see if any of it makes sense. It didn't to me. Charles Darwin, many of you know as the father of evolution in the 19th century, said of man, man in the rudest state in which he now exists is the most dominant animal that has ever appeared on this earth. 
Mark Twain, the American writer in his work, similarly wrote, What is man? Man is a noisome bacillus whom our Heavenly Father created because he was disappointed, disappointed in the monkey. In other words, man is just one level above the animals. And in the 21st century, the answer to the question, what is man, is just as puzzling as ever. Richard Dawkins, the premier evolutionist and biologist, explained, if you want to go back 185 million generations to our ancestors, to the proverbial Adam and Eve, what would it show? That our grandparents, that our grandfather and grandmother was a fish. And today, the question of man is constantly being redefined in the normalization of transgenderism, in use and acceptance of the non-binary category in academia and in our culture. We're continuing our study through our intermittent series, Summer in the Psalms, and today we are on Psalm 8. Now, as one pastor theologian points out, some psalms stand out out of the 150 as exceptional. So, for example, Psalm 23 is cherished by many, memorized, framed, illustrated in terms of the Christian experience. Psalm 2 uh, stands out also as exceptional for its clear portrayal of Christ and his mission on earth. But in the list of the greatest of all psalms, Pastor Dick Lucas argues Psalm 8 must have a place. And I agree in my study that there is so much hidden treasure for excavation in this psalm, it's overwhelming to possibly exposit all of its riches in just one sermon. At first, it seems like a wonderful psalm of praise to our majestic God. We're praising God through this psalm, right? Several hymns and songs have been the inspiration for it. But again, the structure, the poetic language, the breadth and depth of biblical theology, and the placement of the psalm in the Psalter has so much significance. I pray whatever little I have to share with you will serve you and encourage you to study it and meditate it on it further. I found a really, really interesting study. If you email me, I might send it to you if you promise to talk it over with me. And because I felt there are so many ways for the psalm to be presented, I reached out, in fact, in the middle of the week to several of you to help me with my outline. And uh, when I was starting out, I started with five points, but I came down to simple, uh, a two-point outline, which I will share with you in a bit. But to give you some context on Psalm 8, Psalm 8 falls within the first five books of the Psalms. And I share with you in previous weeks that the book of Psalms is divided into five large sections. Now, within book 1, chapters 1 through 41, uh, the 41 chapters are divided into five mini-sections. Uh, the first two chapters, Psalm 1 and 2, serves as the introduction to the entire book about God's promise to raise up the anointed king to deliver Israel uh, from the evil and the violence against them. And this anointed king, who is the promised Messiah, he would confront God's enemies and he would be a protective fortress for all who take refuge in him. After chapter 2's introduction, uh, the next grouping of the Psalms is from chapters 3 through 14. And Psalm 8 is right in the center of this section, which serves a really significant purpose. Let me tell you why. From chapters 3 through 7, we've been reflecting on King David's story from the past when he felt powerless and was being pursued by his enemies because of, his, of the sins that he had committed. And in those Psalms, David cries out to God to save him, to deliver him, and to justify him in God's righteousness against his enemies. 
Uh, You'll see in the following weeks as we study the Psalms that come later, especially in Psalm 9 through 14, we'll be introduced to a group of people described as the oppressed and the afflicted who will join David in crying out to God and asking God to confront their enemy empires and vindicate God's people. These sections of the psalm shows us that David, as well as the oppressed and the afflicted ones, are weak and are powerless against their enemies. But it is they, however, the powerless and the, and the oppressed, that God has chosen to rule the world. And that's exactly what Psalm 8 is all about. That is the question of the psalmist in Psalm 8. And the question for us to ask this afternoon You can find it in verse 4, in the center of the psalm, which reads, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So this afternoon, I want to share with you two reasons why God cares for you and I. Why God cares for man. Here's the outline so you know what's coming. What is man? Point number one from verses 1 through 4, a worshiper. And point number two, a representative from verses 5 through nine. If any of you are here this afternoon needing a reminder of the purpose of your life, I pray this psalm will encourage you afresh the purpose of your existence. If the busyness and the distractions of your work life and family life and the pressures and lures of this world has hindered you off course, I pray that these words will realign you to a right purpose and perhaps compel some of you towards reprioritizing what truly matters in this life. So without further ado, follow along as I read and keep your Bibles open again to Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea." O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that God is mindful of him? Point number one, he is a worshiper from verses one through four. As I mentioned earlier, the author of the psalm is David. The inspired heading of the psalm indicates so. The heading also tells us the psalm is a giddeth, which we don't really know what it means other than some sort of musical instrument or perhaps some liturgical term. The word is only found three times in all of Scripture, Psalm 8, Psalm 81, Psalm 84. The psalm doesn't specify when it was written. Many theologians conjecture it was written when David was a mere shepherd boy, tending to his sheep, looking up to the heavens, to the moon and the stars. You read that in verse 3, don't you? Which says, when I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, And David, seeing the beauty of God's creation, the full, bright moon reflecting its light from the sun, and the countless sparkling stars in the crystal clear skies, unaffected by the modern day light pollution. And it is in this moment, in this moment of stillness 
and appreciating God's creation, a massive revelation, a thousand light bulbs, a mental, emotional, uh, uh, the spiritual faculties exploding into an out-of-body, heavenly, redemptive, historical, biblical theology, inspiring, gospel-drenched praise session. Hallelujah. Have you ever had such experience? And this psalm, this experience would inspire David to write it down as a psalm of praise for us today. It's David being amazed by God's creation, God's grandness, God's beauty in an encounter with a glimpse of who God is. David comes to understand something of who he is, who man is. Of course, David could not have understood it fully. Even in the clear first century sky, David just simply could not have even imagined it. That the stars that he was seeing was only a small part of the 250 billion stars which make up the Milky Way galaxy. And perhaps if the night was really, really clear, perhaps David was able to see another galaxy visible by the naked eye, the most distant object in the skies, the Andromeda galaxy, which is 2.5 light years away from Earth, twice the size of the Milky Way, home to a trillion stars. That they are just two galaxies of the other trillions of galaxies in the observable universe, according to the Hubble Deep Field Space Telescope. You see, there was no way David could have even fathomed the greatness of God, the Creator, to the degree that we know through modern science, the grandness of God, the Creator. But yet... Still, nevertheless, it's enough to shock and amaze David, to burst out in exuberant praise. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Our English translation of the original Hebrew just doesn't do justice to the degree of David's praise. But to clue you in, you'll notice through careful observation that the first word for Lord... L-O-R-D is in all caps. This is to indicate God's personal name, Yahweh. The name Yahweh was a name that the Israelites would not even utter in their day because they recognized how holy it was. In the Old Testament scriptures, they would not even spell out the whole name, Yahweh. They they wouldn't use the vowels, right? So it was written Y-H-W-H. When the scriptures were read aloud corporately, they would pause at that name to pay homage to God. They knew Yahweh was the self-existent God, that he was the creator God who created the vast universe out of nothing, ex nihilo, by his own will and by his own power, that he existed self-sufficiently before the universe even came into being. Yahweh was the I am, or I am who I am, as revealed to Moses and the Israelites in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, and Yahweh was the covenant-keeping God of Exodus 6, verses 2 and 3, when he disclosed himself to Moses. I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. And the second word for the Lord, L-O-R-D, you'll notice, is capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d. This is to indicate another of God's name, Adonai, which means Lord in the sense of a ruler, a master, or a king. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that David praises the majestic name of the Lord. 
Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai. Oh, Yahweh, our King. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, the Hebrew word for majestic, adir, is exactly used to express the visible, seeable manifestation of God's power and might through creation. So whereas if you see God's glory, kabad, you would die because He is so holy, but His majesty and splendor is what we see that is revealed by God in creation for His praise. I think this is what the author of Job meant in Job chapter 26, verse 14, when he wrote, These are but the fingers of His ways. How faint is the word we hear of Him. Who can understand His mighty thunder? Creation, brothers and sisters, at least what we see of it, is but a whisper of His magnificence. His glory is indeed unfathomable. That's why David praises the majestic name of God, not only in all the earth, but praises Yahweh Adonai, who also sets His glory above the heavens. This is a Hebrew literary technique called merism to indicate all of creation, not just the earth, not just the heavens, but from earth to all that is above the heavens are filled with God's glory. That's what the psalmist was trying to portray. Simply what David was saying is there is no place in this boundless universe, no corner, no square foot, no inch of the universe that doesn't shout the majestic name of God, Yahweh, Adonai, I am our King. Hallelujah. Did you notice that phrase in verse 1? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth is repeated at the end of Psalm in verse 9. This is another literary technique called an inclusio where the first and last phrases forms a bookend. And what this means is to show us that everything that falls in between those bookends mean to explain. Okay? So why is the name of God majestic in all the earth and above the heavens? So understand this carefully. Know it clearly. Believe it wholeheartedly. Just as the structure and the framework of this psalm so poetically yet theologically and substantially illustrates the answer to the question of what is man, the answer to the question of what is the purpose of you and I cannot be answered first without understanding the answer to the question who God is. Amen? Outside the boundary of God's majesty, we You and I, sinful beings like you and I, simply have no meaning. We have no purpose. Pursue it all you want without God's glory. Without understanding and grasping and knowing and believing who He is. We have no meaning. We have no purpose, you see. If we don't know who God is, we simply don't know who we are. Doesn't the culture prove this? Doesn't science prove this today? Our identity is not based on our race, you see. Our identity is not grounded on our political affiliations, you see. Our identity is not defined by our sexual orientation. Yet our culture is entirely confused and continues to confound so many by its man-made theories. Yet the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So it's no wonder this psalm falls where it does, in between Psalm 3-7, to in the midst of David's fight for faith, 
In the midst of the oppressed and the afflicted people crying out to God for rescue. In chapters 9 to 14, Psalm 8 is a central reminder that a clear view of God is necessary. That a right theology is essential. And that a Christ-centric biblical theology is the key to it all. But I'll get to more on that later. So, you understand why this is so important, right? I hope you do. There's so many lessons and applications here in these few verses, but here's one. It's teaching us simply, we are not God, but we are mere men. He is the creator. We are His creation. You see, in understanding His majesty, in knowing His name, we find out what we are created for, that we are worshipers. Amen? That we are worshipers. Every single person in this universe worships something. The question is, are we worshiping the right thing? Even as Christians, even as Christians, we in our sins sometimes have a tendency to follow the things of this world, to prioritize the things of this world above God, don't we? This psalm begs to ask us the question, are we worshiping the right thing? That's what we see in verse 2. Look at it. It says, out of the mouth of babies and infants... You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Theologians agree that's a very hard verse to unpack. What does it mean? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, God establishes strength. Because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What in the world does that mean? First and foremost, it means while the enemies of God continues in their evil works and their evil schemes and their evil purposes, God's strength, the original meaning of that word strength means a stronghold or a refuge, God's stronghold, God's refuge is built up and is established. Out of the mouth of babies, from the weak and the vulnerable, the insignificant, the poor and needy things of this world, to prove, to show, to display God's majestic name in all the earth and above the heavens. You see why this, is, this psalm is so exceptional? Well, what are the mouths of the babies and the infants are declaring specifically? Centuries later, Jesus quotes this exact psalm and explains it to us in this way in Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. Listen carefully as I uh, recount some of the, the context of Matthew 21, 16. Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem on his final week on earth on the path to complete his mission on the cross. Uh, It's the scene where Jesus shocks everyone who thinks Jesus is uh, the promised Messiah, the anointed King of God, when they see Jesus riding into town, not in a white stallion, as a conquering king often would do, but he rides in town in a what? In a lowly donkey. The people from the town, gathered by the thousands, lay their cloaks on the road, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and they shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And it says the whole city was stirred and asking the question, Who is this? And it says in Matthew 26, starting in verse 15, But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he, had, he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. The chief priests and the scribes were upset. And they say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? This is blasphemy. Why don't you stop them? And Jesus responds, quoting Psalm 8. Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared 
praises. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Brothers and sisters, what an encouraging word for all of us. What a reminder for us to worship the majestic God with childlike hearts, with childlike faith. He establishes his stronghold. He establishes, he builds up his church with the praises of his children and infants. He silences the enemy. He stills the avenger through the worship of his sons and daughters who are seemingly insignificant, who regularly have no idea what they're doing, who are poor and needy and weak and afflicted. Amen? That's what he does. That's who he is. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how you respond to the current sufferings of your life today. How are you doing praising God, worshiping God's majestic name when troubled times come? His glory, his majesty is so very visible in all the earth, isn't it? Do we have eyes? Do you have eyes to see it? Perhaps in the busyness of your life, your work, your school, your family life, your ministry, the very things you are supposed to depend on God and praise God with are the very things somehow that are hindering your worship today. Do you remember when you prayed for your new jobs? Lord, please, I'll do anything. Give me that new job. Please, let me get accepted into that school. Please. Remember when you prayed for your wife? Desperately, I sure did. And when you prayed for a child desperately and a new church and a new opportunity to serve him, to to evangelize, remember when you committed your life to following Christ wholeheartedly through your local church? Examine yourself if you are doing that wholeheartedly today. Why are you distracted? Why are you divided? Has God changed? Did God tell you otherwise, stop doing that? What is it that has gotten you off course That has brought all these tensions and divisions in your heart. I tell you, when your worship is off, when you prioritize other things before worshiping God, your life lacks meaning. You find yourself in a cyclical rut. This is why pattern after pattern, it shows non-attendance at church is surely the beginning of a litany of sins. Brothers and sisters, do you want to understand the meaning of your life? Do you seek joy and happiness and contentment in your life? Do you seek an answer to what is man? Do you seek an answer to who is James Choi? Enter your name, of course. Apart from the worship of God, there is no answer. Let me correct myself. There is no right answer apart from the right knowledge and worship of God. And to move us along to the next point, the truth of the matter is there was no answer for humanity. Since the sin entered the world in Genesis 3, when the cycle of man attempting to be his own God To live and do life in his own way began in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. Man kept running into the same wall, didn't he? Like a bird trapped indoors, slamming itself against a glass window to escape. No answer, no way, no escape, no salvation. That is, apart from God's answer. So point number two, what is the son of man that you care for him? Point number two, he is a representative. He is a representative from verses 5 through 9. Let's read verses 5 through 8. It says this, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Of course, God's plan for mankind was for us to experience oneness, unity with him in the Garden of Eden. He created us all Each and every single one of us in his perfect image to trust him, to rely on him, to cling to him. We were supposed to reign with him. He had given us dominion over the works of his hands. He put all things under man's feet. And in many aspects, that authority given to us by God, though marred by sin, though broken and impaled, hasn't been entirely lost to us. But while the picture of our rebellion is shown repeated throughout human history, God made a way for his purposes to be fulfilled, didn't he? God made a way for humanity to experience what he originally intended and created for us. So to cut to the point, of course, what Psalm 8 is pointing us to, this is the biblical theology that I hinted earlier, is to Jesus and the redemption we would have in him. Verse 5 again, yet you have made him, read that through the lens of Christ, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Brothers and sisters, this psalm only makes sense through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? When you have time, read over these verses, Ephesians 1.22, write it down, Ephesians 1.22, 1 Corinthians 25 through 28, when you get a chance. Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 28. But let me just reread to you just one passage in the NT, a New Testament that helps us make sense of it all. It's the passage that Cindy read for us. Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, a shorter version of it. It says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Brothers and sisters, it is in Christ who is the great and better Adam. It is in Christ the first of the new creation. It is in Christ the perfect incarnation that verse 5 of Psalm 8 makes sense. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the best news you will ever hear. That God who is holy and just created all things in love for his own glory and for our joy. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in himself, wanting to be a god unto himself, deliberately disobeying God's word. As a result, man was separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving himself from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. That's why nothing on this earth satisfies. The more you have it, it's not enough. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning Sending Jesus wasn't God's backup plan, you see. His plan was to redeem us and forgive us of our sins. Sins of the past, 
present, and future. How? By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we would have paid in eternal hell. They thought he was dead. They thought they buried him in the tomb. They thought it was over. But it wasn't over, was it? On the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. And whosoever, anyone who would repent and believe in him, will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth. Live the amazing, liberated, joyful, hopeful life here on earth and forevermore. Amen? If you're here and you're not a Christian, thank you so much for coming. We're so glad that you are here. I don't know why you're here, but God knows. He wanted you to hear this word and remind you of the truth. I wonder, let me ask you a question. Who or what is it that you live for if you're not a Christian? Do you live for yourself? Do you live for others? And what has been the result? Do you have a purpose? Do you have contentment? Do you have enduring joy? I guarantee you, you don't. You don't because you don't have Christ. And outside of Christ, life doesn't make sense, you see. So I encourage you, I urge you, repent of your sins right now. Believe in Christ's resurrection this moment and trust Him with your life, with your all. I guarantee you, He is safe. He is secure. If you want to know more about how to follow this amazing, awesome Jesus, I'll be standing at the back door at the end of service. And though you may not be able to see it, if there's anybody smiling next to you, eager to talk to you, talk to them about how you can follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my dear New Covenant Baptist Church family, listen to the words of 2 Peter 1, verse 17. For when he, Jesus, received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, it is Christ who has received the glory and honor from the Father. And that is when the voice was born by Him for His majestic glory. All the glory, the beauty of creation and everything good that we see is because of Christ. By Christ's sacrifice on the cross, by Christ's finished and complete work on our behalf, we have the awesome privilege to see and know God's majestic glory. And we have an opportunity to participate in Christ's reign as worshipers and as his representatives, the highest king and Lord of the universe. Do you praise God with me? Will you praise God with me this afternoon? Oh, Yahweh, our king, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May that be your praise, your song, your reason, your purpose in this life today and forevermore. Amen? Let's pray.